This morning, in connection with the sacrament of baptism being administered, we're going to look at Lord's Day 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the focus of Lord's Day 27 is infant baptism. In connection with that, we're going to read Scripture this morning in Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. We're going to begin reading at verse 11 of the chapter. The historical context is that Paul and Silas are on the second missionary journey. And God, through the Holy Spirit, leads them to the city of Philippi. And that's where we pick it up in verse 11. But take notice that in the city of Philippi, there are two instances of household baptism. And that's what we want to take a look at uh, this morning in the sermon. And why it is there was this New Testament practice of household baptism. So beginning at verse 11, Therefore loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. On the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, and of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. When her masters saw that the hope of their gains were gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. And teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks." And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled." But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. 
And he called for light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. When he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And thus far, we read God's word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 27, which you can find on page 15 in the back of your Psalter. Lord's Day 27, the Catechism asks in question 72, is then the external baptism with water the washing away of sin itself? Not at all, for the blood of Jesus Christ only and the Holy Ghost cleanse us from all sin. Why then doth the Holy Ghost call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks thus not without great cause to wit, not only thereby to teach us that as the filth of the body is purged away by water, so our sins are removed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ, but especially that by this divine pledge and sign, he may assure us that we are spiritually cleansed from our sins as really as we are externally washed with water. Are infants also to be baptized? Yes. For since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult, they must therefore by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the new covenant. And thus far we read. The important question that we face as we consider Lord's Day 27 this morning is, why do we baptize our children? I'm going to focus on question and answer 74 this morning. But with that question in mind, why do we baptize our children? The consideration of that question is important for a couple of reasons. I'm certain I'm not exhaustive in this, but a couple of reasons. First of all, this is an important question because there are many in the church world today who say that, no, the right way to practice baptism is only believer baptism. And what they mean by believer baptism is that one must make a profession of faith before one can be baptized. And that means then no infant baptism, no baptism of children that are young, only older children, young people or adults, those who can make profession of their faith. And one of the arguments that is made by those who defend that position is that there are no instances of infant baptism or child baptism in the New Testament. 
So our consideration of this question is important, first of all, from that perspective. The other reason that it's important for us to face the question, why do we baptize our children, is because there's only, always the danger that we simply do it out of habit or custom. The Lord's Supper form reminds us of that and warns us of that and says it must not be done out of habit or custom. Then it becomes empty. It becomes a vain superstition within the church. And so it's important for us to remember and understand why it is that when a baby is born into a family, one of the first things that the parents are thinking about is baptism. And maybe, first child, what, what do I have to do to request baptism for my child? It's, it's part of our Reformed thinking, which is a good thing, but it's also good that we remember why we practice infant baptism within the church. And as we look at the New Testament this morning, in answer to those who would say, there are no instances of infant baptism in the New Testament, we want to understand that in the New Testament, we see this practice of household baptism. And this morning, we want to understand what that means. So that's what we consider for a few moments this morning, the New Testament practice of household baptism. We notice first the Testament's testimony. What I'm talking about there is Old Testament, New Testament, and the testimony of both of those parts of Holy Scripture. Secondly, we want to understand the idea that God's covenant is a family covenant And then finally, we want to see the instruction that must flow out of that for us as parents and for us as a church. Now for a few moments, let's turn to Acts 16. Acts 16 is one of the outstanding passages in the New Testament where we read of household baptism. And there are two instances of household baptism that we read of this morning in Acts 16. The first instance of that is Lydia. So remember Paul and Silas, they set out on the second missionary journey. The Holy Spirit had led them to Macedonia after telling them that they may not go into other places in in Asia and Asia Minor. And there was this Macedonian call that was extended. So Paul and Silas head to Macedonia and the first main stop there in Macedonia is the city of Philippi you'll notice that the first place they stop in Philippi is not where they would normally stop on a missionary journey. On the missionary journeys, they would normally begin first at the synagogue. There was no synagogue in Philippi, which is why Paul and Silas did not go there. But instead, they hear of some believers who are by a riverside, some women who are believers, and they go there and they preach the gospel. It's there where we read in verse 15... I'm sorry, verse 14, that Lydia, the seller of purple in the city of Thyatira, she was a well-known seller of purple, a seller of expensive cloth. She worshipped God, and we read there that she worshipped God because the Lord opened her heart, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things 
which were spoken of Paul. And then after that, in verse 15, we read that she was then baptized. So there's an instance of believer baptism. We don't reject believer baptism outright. If one comes to faith as an adult, then they are baptized. And we've seen that. You've seen that as a congregation. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just the individual Lydia who is baptized then at that time. But then we read that as well. Her household was baptized with her. We don't know who was in that household. If maybe there were slaves in that household. Where was her husband at? We don't read of that. But if there were children, what that means is that those children, whatever age they were, they would have been baptized because her household was baptized. Now we'll look at the biblical foundation of that, why Paul did that in a few moments, but just take notice of that reality of household baptism. And then later in the chapter, we read again of a marvelous work of God in His grace and by the working of the Holy Spirit saving the Philippian jailer. What a testimony of the grace of God. Here this man is. He's taking care of prisoners here in the prison. And then there's this great earthquake. He hears some men singing, praying in the night. It had to stand out to him. It had to be odd to him. But now there's this great earthquake. All the doors in the prison open and all the bands holding the prisoners there in their cells were loosed. And they could have escaped. And the jailer thought that they had. But the danger for a jailer is even if one prisoner escapes, he is automatically, no questions asked, put to death. And so the Philippian jailer is thinking, I have a death sentence already. I might as well take care of it myself. Until Paul calls out and says, we're all here. We're all here. Don't don't kill yourself. Don't do anything to yourself. And then the man rushes in where Paul and Silas are. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And there's the call that is given, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We read here in the passage that the man believes the Holy Spirit worked in his heart using even the means of the singing and the praying of Paul and Silas through the middle of the night. And now he is changed in his heart and he believes. And so we read here again in Acts 16 that he was baptized and his household. Again, we don't know who was in his household. If there are slaves in that household, his wife in that household, the children of that household. But whoever it was, the adults were believing and they were baptized. We read that there. And then if there were children, they also would have been baptized. That's the whole idea of household baptism, which is very different than the concept of those who hold to only believer baptism. What they do is they make baptism individualistic. It's just on the basis of their profession of faith that they then are baptized. But I know it's happened here in this congregation too, that that some, some were baptized and then child baptized or children baptized with them. But now the question for us as we look at that this morning is, 
What's behind household baptism? Why is it that Paul and Silas here on this missionary practiced household baptism? Well, the answer is what we have in the Heidelberg Catechism as it summarizes the scriptural teaching about baptism. So remember the question, why do we baptize our children? The answer is quite simple. And I don't mean that to demean anyone in any way, but it is. It's simply because, and this is what the Catechism is saying, children are part of the covenant and the kingdom of God. We baptize our children because children are part of the covenant and the kingdom of God. Now we look at the New Testament and say, but isn't there time after time when you see believers who are baptized? And the answer is yes, but that's because there was this period of transition. Remember, baptism was newly instituted in the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. Before that, there was no baptism. Before John the Baptist, there really was not baptism. It began with John the Baptist, was instituted by Jesus, and carried on in the New Testament church. And so that explains why it is that many believers then were baptized. They hadn't been baptized as children because there wasn't baptism when they were children. But in addition to that, we see Paul here practicing household baptism so that when someone believed and they had a household, they had a family, their family was baptized at the same time. And it's because baptism has come in the place of circumcision. And that's where we see and understand the testimony of the testaments. The testimony of the testament. So, so far in the sermon, basically we've been looking very narrowly at household baptism in Acts 16. Now what we want to do is we want to zoom out and see that practice in the context of all of Scripture. And here's where we begin. The testimony of the testaments. I'm referring there to the Old Testament And the New Testament, we remember what that word testament means. It's another word for covenant. And Scripture uses that, especially in the book of Hebrews, Old Covenant, New Covenant. So we're talking about the testimony of the testaments. We're talking about the testimony of Scripture in Old Testament and New Testament about the covenant of God. The foundation of household baptism in the New Testament, and as that is carried out really in the church yet today, the foundation of it is God's covenant revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament for the glory of His name in the salvation of His children. Let's remember for a moment the testimony of the testaments regarding God's covenant. What is God's covenant? Well, it's a relationship 
that God establishes with his people, but that's not enough to say relationship. There are all kinds of different relationships. You can have business relationships where there's those relationships are simply transactional relationships. I give you something, you do something for me. That's not our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is a relationship of love and fellowship so that we see and understand that the covenant is not simply a doctrine, but the covenant has to do with the relationship that we have with the one true and living God. And this relationship is a relationship of love. It's, it's not a transactional relationship. It's certainly not an earning relationship. But it's a relationship of love and fellowship wherein He is our Father and we are His children because we've been adopted and made part of His family. A part of that understanding of the covenant is understanding how do we get to be children of God? Well, Genesis 17, verse 7, which we read this morning in the baptism form, reminds us that God's the one who establishes this covenant. We know this relationship of love. We know God as our Father because He is the one who establishes the relationship. He is the one who maintains the relationship. And He's the one who completes the relationship in the end. In other words, he does it all for us to have this relationship and remain in this relationship now and forever and now into, from now into all eternity. This is the covenant that is revealed in Scripture for the glory of God's name, but also for our comfort. Remember, that's the catechism. What's our only comfort in life and in death? In essence, it's the covenant. We have a God who is always with us because we have a God who always loves us. And that love never changes. God's covenant is the good news of His unchanging and unfailing love for us. And thus the testimony of the testaments is not just what the covenant is and what God has done but it's the testimony of God himself where he says to his people over and over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're mine. That's Psalm 103. That's Isaiah in so many places. Isaiah 41, Isaiah 43. That's God's testimony in the New Testament through the Apostle Paul, Romans 8. God says, I love you, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate you from my love. So the foundation of this household baptism is, first of all, that covenant. And there are a couple of other things to notice then. This covenant is one. This covenant is one. They're not different covenants of God. They're different revelations of God's covenant. And he reveals that covenant this relationship of love progressively throughout Scripture, very true. But in the end, there is one covenant of God. It's never that God has one covenant and then it doesn't work out how He plans, so He has to do something else. No, there's one covenant of God. One of the ways that that's evident is even by the reading of the law this morning. 
we're reminded that when Jesus Christ came, he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And then, along with that, we see and understand that the law of God is not just for the Old Testament, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments, but instead that law is for us as well today. Not as a bondage in any way, but we've been set free to keep this law of God. And that's why the law of God in the Old Testament, as I said earlier, is often called the covenant of God. We might look at that. What does that mean? Law is the covenant of God? We read of that in Deuteronomy. But the idea is, is that as those who are the covenant people of God, this law is our guide for how we are to live as his people. And that didn't stop when Jesus Christ came. We continue to be called as the people of God to live by this law in our lives. And Jesus shows that particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. And not only is there one covenant of God, but there's one covenant people of God as well. So this household baptism is built on that. Notice how the Scriptures speak of the covenant people of God. In the New Testament, Old Testament language is used to continue to describe God's people. Galatians 3. Believers are called Children of Abraham. You and I are children of Abraham. Not because we have any blood relationship to him, but because we're believers. In Philippians, we're called the circumcision. The church is called the circumcision. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, the church is called a royal priesthood. So that tells us there are not two different peoples of God People of God in the Old Testament, people of God in the New Testament. No, there's one covenant of God. There's one covenant and one covenant people of God. And so the point is, is that household baptism was practiced by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament because of that oneness of God's covenant. The covenant of the Old Testament is the covenant of of the New Testament. And thus the sign of the covenant, although changed from circumcision to baptism, still it is carried out within the church and it is administered to children, to infants. So that, first of all, that's the testimony of the testaments. Secondly, we understand about God's covenant that his covenant is a family covenant. His covenant is a family covenant. God is a family God who works in the line of generations. So we want to see that again from Scripture. We're taking this high view, the 37,000 foot view of covenant and the way God works as that's revealed in Scripture. We see in Scripture that family is of central importance. In other words, God thinks highly of families. The entire Bible shows that God establishes His covenant in families. We know it in this way, in this terminology. He works in the line of generations. 
You and I really cannot understand God and his covenant without understanding that he is a God who is pleased to work in the line of generations. Now, that's not the only way. There are times when God brings people from the world who are living in ungodliness and sin, and he brings them out of that. But even then, often what he does is he works in generations, like the Philippian jailer and like Lydia in Acts 16. But you go back to the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, generations. God was working the line of generations. There are in the beginning books of the Bible all of these genealogies. We maybe don't hear many sermons preached on genealogies. It's maybe true that in our family worship we don't read the genealogies and that's okay if we don't. We're struggling to read all of these Hebrew names, but we should take notice of them and we should understand why these genealogies are found in Scripture. The genealogies are there as a testimony of the fact that God is working in the line of generations. Now, some of the genealogies are of the wicked. And it shows as well how sin and ungodliness develops in generations there too. But God is a God who saves in the line of generations. Then there's Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, family Psalms, which we like to sing on the occasion of baptism that remind us that God is a family God who works in the line of generations. And what's taught in the Old Testament is also taught in the New Testament. And the baptism form references those. Mark 10, when parents brought their children to Jesus and he held them and he blessed them. And he taught us as well that it's important that we enter the kingdom as a child does with childlike faith. But part of the point of that history is to show God works in generations. Acts 2 verse 39, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And that's why the book of Acts then is filled with references to house hold baptism. Because the family is important to God, we see that the family unit also ought to be important to us. See other ways in which the family unit is important to God. God gives specific commands to the family. That's not just Old Testament. When children in the fifth commandment are called to honor their parents, but then you go to the New Testament, you go to a passage like Ephesians 6. and says, parents, provoke not your children to wrath. Children are so important in the church. God says to you parents and says to me as a parent, don't provoke your children to wrath. And then God says to you children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It shows the importance of the family within the church. And then one other reference, one other reference in Matthew 18, Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 5 and 6, we read there, and whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me, and whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck 
and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's built on the fact that God is a family God and the family is important to him. He says to us, we're going to hurt and damage children in any way. It were better that a millstone, a millstone is huge and heavy. If it's tied around your neck, there's no escape. If you're thrown into the depths of a lake with a millstone tied around your neck, you will die. God shows the importance of the family union and the importance of children. One of the ways that's important to see today is in, in the sexual abuse that is obviously something we're talking about in our churches right now and ought to. This is an important word for us in regard to that as well. That we as parents ought to be defending and protecting our children. We as a church ought to be defending and protecting our children because of the importance of the family unit. It's important to God. The children of the church are that important to God. And it's not just about sexual abuse. There are many other ways that children can be abused and hurt by parents. And not just by parents, but others in the community or in the church as well. And this is a warning. God loves the children of the church because He is a family God. That's what's part of this household baptism that is practiced in the New Testament. But the question is, why is the family of central importance to God? Now here's where we have to understand this in the right way. We certainly should not become clannish in our thinking and just think, only about our families. But we have a bigger picture to remember. That God is a family God means, first of all, that He's a family God in His own being. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. The uh, whole concept is family is found in the very essence of who God is. It's who He is as the triune God. This is why denying the Trinity is so significant. Really, it throws out the whole concept and right concept of family and friendship. But because God is a family God in His very being, He is a God who then adopts us to be sons and daughters of His. Beloved, no matter what your family situation is, maybe you have a wonderful family and there's peace and love and unity or Maybe there's division and hurt in your family. No matter what your family situation is, you and I are part of a bigger family. And baptism reminds us of that. It's not just about me and my family. But as Reformed believers, we're always thinking, I'm part of a bigger family. And right here in this place, our fellow brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ in your family that's sitting next to you, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, but more broadly and bigger, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has chosen us. Because He's adopted us. He's redeemed us. He's done everything to make us part of His family. And this God who makes us part of His family is a God who's pleased to work in the line of generations. We know that. It's a verbiage we've, we've heard for a long, long time. But the older I get, and I'm sure the older that some of you get, 
and you start seeing generations in your own family behind you and not just in front of you. You're appreciative of the wonderful and amazing and marvelous grace of God that saves in generations for the glory of His name. And I know it's difficult when there are some who are rebellious and their hearts are hardened in their lives and we pray for their repentance and we pray for their change, but we do know yet this beautiful truth that God saves in the line of generations. And now you put all of that together. This is why we baptize our children. This is why Paul practiced at the time that he did household baptism so that if there were children in those households, they would have been baptized. That was part of his thinking, his biblical thinking, because that was the testimony of the testaments. That's the testimony of the covenant, and that's the testimony of a family God who works in the line of generations for the glory of His name. And because God is a family God, we know that children are part of His family, His covenant. That doesn't mean every child born into the church is. But we know that that's the normal way that God works in the line of generations. We're part of God's family in generations because of His sovereign grace. That essentially is what the Heidelberg Catechism is teaching us when it answers that question, are infants also to be baptized? And getting at the question, why? Why? It's because God is a God who saves in generations. Children are part of the covenant and kingdom of God. And when we understand that, when that fills our minds and our hearts as it does this morning, then we understand as well the importance of teaching and instructing the generations to come. Because God thinks highly of families as a family God, we do bear a high responsibility to teach and instruct the generations to come. We don't sit in our hands and we don't just sit back and say, well, God does it all, I don't do anything, therefore there's nothing for me to do. No, we know that what arises out of all of this is the important calling to instruct and teach our children. Some of us, like Zach and Aaron, are just beginning. Others of us have been teaching and instructing for many years already, and we see our weaknesses and our faults as we have carried that out. Some of us are grandparents who look back upon our parenting and realize we did that in much weakness and sin. But the impression that's made upon all of us is the importance of teaching and instructing the generations to come. So when it comes to that, we see God's a family God and He saves in the line of generations. The question for us is, what are we to teach our children? There are many ways we could answer that question, but let's zero in on what's of utmost importance as we teach our children. What's of utmost importance as we teach our children is that we teach them the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. It's that we teach them of the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And then we teach our children 
to be followers of Jesus Christ as they live their lives? Is there anything we want more than that, that our children would be followers and disciples of Jesus Christ as they live their lives? Not a follower and disciple of me, and I'm talking as a father here, not that my children would just do the things that I want them to do and do things the way that I do them, but more than anything, what I want and what you want as well is that our children would follow Jesus Christ and reflect Him as they live their lives in humility and in love and so many other ways as well. And that means then, teaching our children the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ and teaching them that we love Jesus Christ because we know the love of Jesus Christ for ourselves. And we're telling our children about that. Is that what we're doing? It's very easy. I reflect back upon my own parenting of teaching behavior. Behavior is important. But I know for myself, and I've seen that in parenting too, we become very good at teaching little Pharisees. They, they know how to obey the, the rules. And it's important that they obey the rules. I'm not saying we don't have rules. We have rules, and they must learn to obey them. But they have to know the why. They have to, to live this out of a relationship that they have as God gives that, a relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing His love and loving Him as well. That means teaching our children the gospel when they sin. Not just looking at their behavior as just a reflection of us or looking at their behavior as an inconvenience to me in the moment that it is going on but seeing a glorious opportunity to teach these children about the gospel. You're a sinner, and I'm a sinner too. And this is what you need. You need the cross of Jesus Christ right now for your bad conduct. You need Him. And there is one who came and died upon the cross to save you from your sin, just as I know that there is the Savior who came to save me from my sin. So we teach them what it means to be believers. We teach them what it means to repent of sin. We teach them how to respond to others who sin against them. We teach them how to live in faith and in godliness in their lives. And that's not just the calling that we have as parents. It's a calling that we have as a church. This morning, Zach and Aaron answered the three questions of the baptism form, questions of the baptism form we maybe heard so often that we have them memorized. I've read them so often, I probably don't even need them in front of me. But we ought to remember as well that it's not just a calling for parents, but for the entire church. I, I know it's the practice in some denominations that those very baptism questions are not only given to the parents, but they're given to the entire congregation. The congregation's responds to those questions as well. And vows to teach and instruct these children. It's a nice practice. I don't think it's necessary within the church. But the point that I want to make is, is that Together as a church, when we hear those vows taken, we ought to be taking them together as a church and saying, I'm going to help these parents train up and instruct their children in the ways of God. That's part of remembering we're part of a bigger family. 
And thus, we have a calling and responsibility as well as a church. One of the ways that this works out organically is by coming together as parents and grandparents in generations and as single members of the church as well for the formation of Christian schools and supporting of the Christian school as well. So why it's important that, that grandparents, grandfathers are part of school associations and so on, the society, so that they show in that way we're committed to training the generations to come within the church. In our schools, the covenant community comes together to instruct the future generations according to God's truth. This is the way this works out organically within the church and as we band together in that way. It's one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways. Grandparents taking an active part and members of the church when they see the children developing good relationships with them that they may be a help and encouragement to them in their lives. We see and understand as well this morning that we are to use baptism to teach our children. We have a teaching opportunity this morning, parents, when you go home. Did you see baptism this morning? Well, one, one time you were baptized. Water, water was sprinkled on your head. Sometimes we joke, did you remember that? And some of the little kids will, oh yeah, I remember that. Well, of course they don't remember that. But we use baptism to teach them. To teach them not only that their sins are washed away in the blood of Christ when they sin, but also to teach them. Now, you've been set apart. The catechism points that out as well. Baptism sets us apart from the world. Now, you're to live as one who is set apart from the world. Live out what is pictured there by that sign. And when you're sinning, you're not living according to that baptism because baptism pictures not only the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ, but also the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we've been set apart and that we have been changed. So let's use baptism, parents, as a way to teach our children to be dedicated to serving Jesus Christ as they live their lives. So, household baptism. Beautiful practice in the New Testament built on the teaching of the whole of Scripture of God's covenant and His family. And now out of that flows the instruction we give to our children. May God give us much grace and strength to carry out this callings and the knowledge of what He has done by His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for Thy Word. We're thankful for the hope and comfort of the covenant. We are thankful for Thy love. And Father, we love Thee. We love the children that Thou hast given in our families or if we don't have them in our own homes. We love the children of the church as well. And we desire to serve them and teach them and instruct them in the ways that they are to go. Grant us much strength to be faithful in this. Grant to Zach and Aaron's strength to be faithful in this as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.